0: What happens in conspiracy theories or conspiratorial ideas is that they're persistent. And once you grab hold of something that seems to answer your question, it's very hard for you to back away from the conspiracy theory.
1: Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. As the COVID 19 virus has proliferated across the globe, So too has the spread of conspiracy theories purporting to explain the virus's creation and purpose, ranging from theories about Bill Gates to the virus being a bioweapon. In an environment filled with mistrust and uncertainty, the pandemic has provided a perfect breeding ground that enables niche conspiracies to circulate rapidly and even move into the mainstream. In today's podcast, rain experts will share their insights on why conspiracy theories go viral and how to formulate corporate responses that can stem the spread of disinformation. This podcast will take place in two parts. Our host for these podcasts is RAIN founder and chief collaborative officer David Lawrence. Our guest panel includes David Broniatowski, director of the Decision Making and Systems Architecture Laboratory at George Washington University, Robert Ludke, senior consultant with Enodo, Dr. Scott Schumate founder of Valutare, and Matthew Siegel, CMO and head of global client group Aperture Investors. Let's listen in.
2: First, I want to thank um, a very, very distinguished panel. It should be a very interesting conversation uh, today and obviously a very, very timely one. Uh, I actually wanted to start out with a a somewhat apocryphal story that was shared uh, with me uh, by one of the former administrators of the DEA who after he retired, taught a course at a leading university around conspiracies. And he started uh, every uh, semester with the following story. A leading history professor passes away and he goes off to heaven. And he's greeted at the uh, pearly gates by God. And he's obviously in awe and uh, he bows down and God says, no, 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 you have no reason to bow to me. I, I am here to usher you in to heaven and to thank you for leading such a wonderful and exemplary life. We're very, very happy to have you. Professor says, you know, Lord, I, I am, in fact, uh, honored. Um, and the Lord turns to him and says, as, as sort of a rite of passage, for people who have led truly exemplary lives, I grant a single answer to any question that has troubled you Throughout your lifetime, the most important question that's in your mind. I am happy to answer it definitively and finally. The history professor thinks for a moment and says, Actually, Lord, something has troubled me for over 50 years. The assassination of John Kennedy. Was it Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, or was it a conspiracy? That hesitation, God turns to him and says, My son, It was Oswald acting alone. He was the single assassin. The gates open, Professor begins to walk off. And as he gets down the trail past the pearly gates, he's seen shaking his head and muttering to himself, this conspiracy goes further than I had ever believed. (laughs) Uh, So I, 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 I bring this up. I bring it up because... You know the notion of conspiracy theories, and also during it's not just times of pandemics, but times of crises, uh, and particularly at, at this stage of technology and how information flows, uh, is a very very important topic. And I feel fortunate—I know the audience will—to have such a great panel to discuss this. So. Maybe we can go into, I want to encourage a conversation uh, because you've all had such great experience in sort of understanding sort of what lies at the heart of conspiracy theories, how they begin to sort of stand up, how they gain traction, and often why they're so believable. And maybe, David, I'll start with you, and obviously we'll we'll go down to Robert and Scott and, uh, and Matt.
3: Yeah, so um, it, it's particularly interesting to me that uh – we're at a point in history right now where conspiracy theories are becoming increasingly noticed and increasingly seen as influential. Uh, And I think that that goes hand in hand with the nature of the world that we're living in. We're living in a world that is increasingly complex, increasingly interconnected, uh, where there are forces that, are system-level forces in a sense. Uh, They are oftentimes global. They're outside of the control of any one individual person, and they're hard to understand. And when we're dealing with these deep uncertainties, people want answers. People seek meanings. And conspiracy theories give answers to deep uncertainties. Uh, That's part of the reason why they're so compelling. They answer this meaning threat. And so I think that one of the things that we really need to keep in mind uh, is that this is not something that's an isolated period in history, in a sense. It's something that's a consequence of the technological world that we live in. And it, in a sense, maybe is going to increase more and more, or at least that's the concern.
2: And so, Robert, there's nothing new about conspiracy theories. What may be new is... Um how they can germinate, metastasize, and spill. Part of the work that you've done at Inoto is to try to dissect some of these conspiracies and understand where they originated from. And maybe you can share some insights in terms of uh, why they seem to proliferate, particularly around times of crises and how you can begin to understand their their origins.
4: Yeah. So to you know to build on what David said you know, in this hyper-connected society where there's, you know, trillions of conversations going on at any moment, there's more and more opportunity for conspiracy theorists to put their theories onto a, you know, piggyback onto a conversation, and to and to spread its reach. Whereas, you know, a couple of generations ago, the channels by which we communicated were you know were relatively limited. Today, it they've proliferated, and so. You know what we've seen um, in the the conversations that we've been tracking around the, the efforts to find a vaccine to the COVID pandemic is that it has become the vehicle by which the anti-vaccine crowd has entered the debate, and they are they're using the broader conversation of the efforts of Bill Gates and others to find a vaccine as a way to talk about. The their theories around vaccines being harmful and and actually hurting more than helping, and so it's it's just more and more opportunities that again previously didn't exist and happening as David said, you know, and at the speed of light.
2: Scott, um, because of your work in the intelligence community, I know uh, you often had to deal with um, state-sponsored efforts around propaganda. Uh, disinformation, etc. So this is nothing new from your standpoint, but there clearly are are new aspects of this because of the the channels and how it scales. And maybe you could share some of your insights around this.
0: Well, uh, you know, as, as has been previously mentioned here, conspiracy theories have been around probably since the very beginning of time. The... Ease at which they can now spread and the degree that they can move beyond one's immediate community is what has really made it particularly an interesting phenomenon that has some good, a lot of bad to it. There are some accelerators, and that is the social media and the ease at which one can literally communicate around the world in an instant. In addition to that, uh, one of the things that we're seeing is a reduction in suppression of generating ideas that are in opposition to, quote-unquote, uh, the leader's uh, viewpoint. Some of that you know, comes about because today we've got cable news, And uh, you see where people are tribal and encamped, uh, looking at certain media, uh, rejecting other media, and that there are clear, oftentimes clear viewpoints being expressed uh, in in the cable media. But what, what that has done is it suppresses the things that we think about. If you think about people. One of the great attenuators of behavior are other people. Other people can also accelerate your behavior. And so if you're in a group of people that have a given position and your position is different and you know that they think differently than you do, that oftentimes suppresses the willingness to express ideas. When you get social media involved, some of that suppression goes away. And then in addition to that, in our world today, there is the removal of that suppression. Regimes in the past around the globe have used suppression as a way to bottleneck or keep uh, the ideas that they do not want broadcast away from the broader community so that they can maintain control. They oftentimes suppress that and then add to it a real propaganda machine where they are constantly broadcasting the message that they want the people to believe. I think it was uh, David or or Bob that might have mentioned something about people needing to know during times of crisis. And I, I think that that's true. But at the same time, some people have a tremendous need to try to make sense of their world. And so they are willing to listen to anything that is broadcast to them from an individual that they believe has some knowledge or expertise and uh, are able to give them an answer and conspiracy theories oftentimes fills that role because it does give answers conspiracy theories frequently are willing to go way out on a limb where people who are much more responsible and are tending to want to hold to fact are less inclined to go as far and it usually evolves over time as more and more information comes up or becomes known and so when you give a when somebody is listening to a conspiracy theory, if they are one of these individuals who feel a particular need to know an answer, that conspiracy theory has a tendency to be able to fulfill that need, and so they listen to it.
2: Scott, uh, a great insight. What is implicit in what you're saying? Everybody has a need to understand things. I'm reminded of okay. uh, you know the principle of Occam's razor about. But conspiracy theories are often very complex, layered, and pointing to a multitude of sources yes. and as as well as motivations. And there's something else that right. appears, you know, at work here. And maybe you know, I'll just pull this through with you. And and I know Matt has spent a great deal of time studying this, but a lot of this seems to also have. A correlation to the lack of trust. Yes. Governmental bodies, they could be corporate bodies. It could be the individual messenger who is conveying things. And while we started on a somewhat lighter note about a very significant moment in history, you know, to this day, uh, a vast majority of people do believe in that there was a conspiracy. The 9-11 attack was, you know, a CIA plot as well as uh, by others. Uh, and similarly, conspiracies are floating around the origins of the pandemic and who was responsible. And it's actually become a bit of a war uh, for the hearts and minds of different populations. And so you seem to also be suggesting that there is a basic uh, issue of trust around information, the sources, the messengers, right.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're definitely right. The messenger is very important uh, in not only delivering a conspiracy theory, but trying to counter that conspiracy theory and the propaganda around it. The messenger is extremely important. So let me give you a, an example. Years ago, I got invited to the Canadian Intelligence Service uh, to. Uh, to talk to them and you know there was an audience of about a hundred people. And at the break they took me down to the little gift shop, you know, if I wanted to pick up anything. And one of the guys, you know, followed along and and then cornered me, literally, in the corner of the gift shop and he said, Could you tell me, did the CIA kill JFK? And I said, Well, before I answer your question, let me ask you the simple question. Do you think it's possible to hold a secret for 40 years without it ever coming out? And uh, he said, "Yes, he did." I said, "Well then, if you believe that, what would make you think that today is the day that we're going to break that secret?" And uh, and so he he you know just kind of looked at me and I said, "Before you go any further with it, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the CIA had nothing to do with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But, you know, your question at, at the very essence of it doesn't allow for a true discussion, right? Because if it has been a secret, then why would I break it? If you don't believe that you can hold a secret for 40 years, why would you think that? your idea that the CIA was involved has any legitimacy to it. I mean, your, your question really, frankly, is, you know, kind of provocative, but it really doesn't allow for, uh, you know, a real discussion. And, and so, but what it means is what happens in, in conspiracy theories or conspiratorial ideas is that they're persistent, And once you grab hold of something that seems to answer your question, it's very hard for you to back away from the conspiracy theory. And so they are persistent, and this is what part of the problem is, and this is why it takes an ongoing effort to try to negate the power of the message that is being broadcast within a conspiracy theory. And as you have, John, pointed out, Oftentimes in conspiracy theories, there's a lot of inconsistencies that are in there. And yet those don't seem to bother the beholder of the belief that is part of that conspiracy theory.
2: Matt, listen, as the chief digital officer and chief marketing officer, I know you've had, uh, first of all, you've sort of been there at the ground floor of social media and trying to understand it and, and, you know, part of your position has always been around managing a variety of brands and responsible for not only getting messages out, but also seeing what was coming back and understanding it. And, um, at times playing the game of whack-a-mole concerning, you know, certain communications and certain stories that were out there. Maybe you can share some of your insights around this and particularly this is. A very, very interesting inflection point where we have had not only, you know, a significant health crisis, but some very, very important social issues that have always been with us and have percolated up from time to time and then sometimes been there, but not been fully exposed have now, have now just really come to the surface. I'd be curious to understand sort of what you're seeing and, and sort of what you're understanding about the current landscape.
5: Yeah, for sure. And uh, and I think this expands on what, what some of the other guests have said. The promise of social media and I would say the digital distribution of information more broadly was that it democratized the spreading of ideas in all their forms, be they music, visual, video. Conspiracy theories, theories about pandemics, et cetera. Uh, You know, anyone hooking up to that system really has the ability to get an idea out there. And I think it's important to recognize, although in in many cases I am a big believer in you know nothing new under the sun. I think the medium is fundamentally different from information systems that came before. If you think about analog dissemination of information, uh, newspapers, radio. The predominant media up until very recently in human history, they had very singular kind of monolithic control, right? You had to own the printing press, own the broadcasting equipment, um, whatever it was. So I think the kind of influence and kind of conspiracy theories that, you know, people were afraid of had a different genesis or a different source. You know, in the age of the influencer, it's possible for anyone to think of themselves as an influencer and you know shout into a megaphone whether what they have to say is is true or not, and that that's presented some really interesting challenges. Now, of course, that comes before, of course, you know, state actors and um, and others have figured out how to utilize and control these media in, in ways that they had uh, in the past, but. You know, by and large, that democratization of of shouting into the megaphone, as it were, has been preserved by the structure of the internet and the legal framework surrounding it. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, nobody knew what Section two hundred and thirty of the Communications Decency Act is, but now, because our, our president has taken an interest, everybody knows what it is. But you know, it is something like that that has really preserved the ability of these platforms to remain open to everyone, no matter what their their ideas may be. Now. That could change in the future. Certainly, I think, you know, a guy like Tim Wu is very afraid that the Facebooks and Microsofts and the Googles and the Amazons of the world could, if they wanted, assert the kind of control that our president is claiming that they are asserting. But to date, I think it's important to remember the reason a lot of these theories, be they true or not, have been able to spread and, and go viral is because they're so open and really anyone has an opportunity to be heard. You know, an implication in the commercial world is obviously that brands, governments, um, non-governmental agencies have to contend with uh, all sorts of noise that they didn't necessarily have to contend with before. And I know we'll talk about this more, but that, you know, that presents all sorts of interesting tactical challenges because most entities I don't think are used to engaging with the public and with information in this way.
2: So that's a a great perspective. And um, just as you reference, Matt, this is not just everyone has a megaphone. Everyone has a megaphone. Uh, They could have gone to Union Square Park here in New York and, you know, preached or done whatever they want. Obviously, they have the ability not only to do it at scale, but they're able to do it without actually identifying who they are and being able to at least if they if they can't convince people of their credibility, authenticity, their bona fides, they can at least make it look like they should be heard. So, you know, for those people who have been, you know, in London and and seen people take the soapbox in in various places, uh, you know, you look at the person and you're making a judgment very quickly, uh, whether you're going to stand around and listen to him or her and whether you're going to believe him or her. That doesn't occur here. It's a really important point because, you know, lest we
5: not forget, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously, right? So I I don't think that anonymity is necessarily the the villain or the culprit. I think it's the the second half of what you started to talk about, which is the fact that digital platforms make it easier, I would posit, to create the illusion of validity in some ways that the, the rest of the panel is far more qualified to talk about. But in some ways that really cut to the core of what motivates human beings. Those little likes and those views and, you know, all of your data and all of your stats being being amplified and gamified, I think cuts right to the dopamine receptors in your brain and biases about in-groups and out-groups. And I don't know, I can't think of another information media where there's just been so much feedback that enables you to create that that kind of a sense of legitimacy or an emotional connection to a piece of information. I mean, you certainly didn't get it uh, from just picking up a newspaper and reading a story, which is just totally one way. Um, and this is something that, listen, advertisers figured this out, I think, well before governments and non-governmental
4: entities did. David, it's, it's Bob. If I could pick up on that point, what we've seen in our research is that the The theories that are at least seemingly plausible are the ones that pick up the speed more quickly and spread more quickly. So, for example, in this, in the conversations around the pandemic, it's those that are, you know, questioning with, you know, reasonable sounding points, you know, the validity of the testing rates or the validity of wearing the masks. Compared to, you know, those that are standing up and saying, well, it's, you know, this is a virus spread by the 5G towers. Like that's, that's ultimately not going to go anywhere. The the really sophisticated ones are those that actually make you think a little bit. And, and, and they're the ones that, that get, get repeated time and time again and, and pushed because it just, it sounds kind of credible. Like I'll, I'll share it. And then the other point is, you you talked about emotions and you talked about visual aspects. And compared to where we were four years ago, when this disinformation campaigns were frankly print in nature, now there's these exceptionally sophisticated video platforms that tell these stories in a visual way, and they can actually replicate, you know, people. And and those are the ones that are really, really penetrating the mindset. Um, compared to just words on a page. And, and so we, we are on the front edge, really, of, of the next quantum leap in the sophistication of how these disinformation campaigns spread their messages.
2: So that's a, a great point. And just, this is for the audience, for those people who are not familiar with the 5G controversy uh, as it related to COVID-19, um, a theory went around, that the construction of 5G towers was linked to the spread of the virus. It was not dismissed so quickly, Bob. As you know, a, a number, a number, in a number of places, to- towers were destroyed and fires were set. You know, violence was committed. Uh, there was a viral video called Plandemic, which, you know, finally was taken down, but I think it's still out there, but it was viewed. Um, at some point I think by 7 or 8 million people, and I had very sophisticated people who were calling me and asking whether it was legitimate. It was a very legitimate-looking video interview, almost quasi-news coverage uh, about a individual who in her career had been a so-called leader in infectious diseases. And she basically took people through an analysis of the current pandemic, where it started, why misinformation and the advice of CDC and other bodies was promulgated to deceive the public and, you know, what it was that people actually needed to know. And it was very convincing to a lot of people. And there's been some cutting and pasting of guidance that appeared to come from Stanford University Medical Center, from Johns Hopkins, from the Mayo Clinic. And all of it, to your point, had It sort of walked and talked like it was legitimate, that it was plausible. But David, let me me come back to you and some of the points. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, the actors behind this and their motivations? That's critical to understanding the landscape.
3: Yeah, so I was actually going to mention those, uh, especially in the context of this megaphone analogy that we've been talking about, and also especially in the context of the 5G conspiracy theory. Uh, because the 5G one is is, is an especially interesting case. Uh, it fits a pattern. The reason why there were conspiracy theories about 5G is because there is actually a long history of certain adversaries of the United States Promoting conspiracy theories about technological and public health interventions when those adversaries themselves are behind in the technology, and the reason, uh, the, the the reason why they may be doing so uh, is because slowing down our adoption of the technology can put uh, them at a relative advantage, and five G in particular has the uh, possibility of vastly uh, enabling all sorts of. Uh, of 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 cyber social uh, uh, advances uh, around around the US, everything from self-driving cars to uh, much more uh, much more high fidelity communications, uh, real time command and control uh, in a way that is simply uh, not possible under current protocols. Uh, And so one of the things that we've actually seen is that as 5G was starting to be rolled out, there were actually organized uh, disinformation campaigns going back already a few years uh, around 5G. And those disinformation campaigns actually drew upon existing conspiracy communities essentially as vectors for the spread of this kind of disinformation, and so one of the things we started to see was that 5 g conspiracy theories were adopted by some of the sort of more extreme conspiracy theorists those that claim for example that uh, that governments of the world are trying to depopulate certain communities or are trying to uh, trying to engage in uh, uh, population control through the use of of, of of widespread chemicals. There are a lot of a lot of these weird ideas out there. Um, but we also see five G conspiracy theories starting to gain purchase uh, over the past few years among several vaccine opponent communities, and from there they go into a lot of the uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, discourse. So a lot of what we're seeing, uh, and the, the relationship between five G and COVID nineteen, wasn't spontaneous. It was actually a very well prepared campaign that grew out over a number of years, uh, in part because of uh, Russian disinformation, in particular. Uh, again, because the Russian uh, the Russian government is lagging behind. Uh, other countries in its rollout of 5G, uh, and to some degree around China as well, because there's competition between uh, Chinese and American 5G providers, each one claiming that the other is uh, is in violation of, uh, of, of various uh, security um, uh, regulations, or is, for example, using 5G to spy on the other. Uh, in fact, I think the Chinese government ran an ad in the New York Times explicitly targeting uh, the Australian rollout of 5G, uh, I want to say about a year ago. Uh, and so th- this is, again, th- the point here being that this doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, some of these ha- have seeds that are planted, uh, you know, sparks that are fanned into flames by foreign actors. Uh, and those foreign actors use a number of tools that are unique to these social media platforms to amplify and propagate these, uh, these disinformation items in a way that make them seem more plausible. So for example, uh, there was the, the analogy used of, of the megaphone before that. Uh, but I actually like to think about it as individual social media users being one voice in a crowd. Now, when one person in a crowd has a megaphone, and nobody else in that crowd has a megaphone, then the person with the megaphone has an unfair advantage. One could even argue that they're actually censoring everybody else uh, through uh, flooding the discourse with their own voice. Uh, And in fact, that's one of the things that we've started to see uh, around uh, several of these conspiracy-oriented discourses is the use of automated accounts, people call them bots, uh, to essentially amplify certain voices and make it appear As if opinions that are on the fringe are actually more widespread than they actually are. So one of the things that we see uh, here is that the use of the technology combined with disinformative tactics uh, actually can serve as a form of censorship that not only amplifies those voices, but has the practical effect of making it harder to hear legitimate voices.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Can I can I jump here? I, I think that I think I think those were all very uh, good comments. I mean, I really, uh, you know, agree with it. I mean, I I think when we look at conspiracy theories, we we really need to kind of break them down a little bit. I mean, clearly there are those geopolitical, ideological, political, monetary type of Uh, motivations for conspiracy theories. But there's also uh, a benign aspect uh, that is there because some of these conspiracy theories really start at the grassroots level and uh, gain momentum, uh, you know, sometimes very rapidly. And uh, the people who join the conspiracy theory may see a political, a monetary, a geopolitical aspect that they can try to uh uh, fulcrum uh, against but some of those conspiracy theories are in fact oftentimes started because people just do not want to base their opinion on what other people believe that are supposed leaders or supposed experts and so they want to throw out their own uh agenda as such. Uh, And again, it doesn't necessarily have to have the malicious aspect to it, but it can take on that form over time. And certainly, if you look at some of the enemies of the United States, some of them are more than willing to try to take advantage of some of these uh, initiatives that are brought forward. Again, some of them for non-malicious, mostly benign reasons. And some of the people who start those mostly benign uh, uh, conspiracies are people who want things to stay the same for there to be no change. And so you see a new technology that comes out, 5G is the one that was brought up that represents change that represents something i'm not ready for because i want things to stay the same no matter what and so if you go back in time any new technology came with a certain amount of conspiracy or or fear of of what it represented and a lot of that was misinformation but it, some of it had to do with people just not wanting to experience change because change can be very threatening to people. Now, clearly, the point that was made is that in, in the 5G situation that Russia wants to try to level the playing field, let there be no doubt that there is that type of initiative, not only with Russia, but other countries as well. And so what can start off as a fairly innocent Uh, uh, viewpoint being expressed can get very complicated very rapidly by all sorts of players, some of which who have malicious intent.
2: So that's a great point, Scott. So some of this is organically grown, other it is uh, imported or exported from. So you have your geopolitical actors. There are people who enjoy mischief. There are people who are seeking financial gain. And then... You know, you also have political agendas that are internal. So I want to thank all of you, David, Robert, Scott and Matt. Terrific insights. Your time is very valuable and we really appreciate uh, you having shared this with our audience today. So conversation to be continued.
1: In part two of our podcast, we'll discuss how conspiracy theories can be assuaged by active listening and frequent communication. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the Daily Risk book, email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening.